A world where there's a plethora of different kinds of society, where people consent to the rules and people have the ability to choose what kind of system they live under, is a better society for everyone. Hello there, how are you all? Did you all have a good weekend? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I've got an interview with Peter Young, the Managing Director of the Free Cities Foundation. Now, free cities are essentially areas where laws and services are organized by private companies. They provide the opportunity to test new types of government. And the idea of a libertarian-style city is something I've been trying to figure out for a while. It's something that comes up a lot with Bitcoiners. And also, I've been working my way through my friend Balaji's book, The Network State, and just trying to understand different types of organization or different types of governance. So this was an interview I did want to do. And honestly, I went into it quite skeptical. I had a lot of questions for Peter. But you know what? I've really come around to the idea. I think some of the stuff they're working on is super interesting. So I'm definitely going to be keeping an eye on this. Definitely going to be covering this a bit more on the show in the future. Anyway, if you've got any questions about this or any other show or anything at all, please feel free to reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Peter, how are you? I'm, I'm good, Peter. How are you? Good. So uh, a mutual friend of ours recommended that I should talk to you, Daniel Prince. There we go. He's a good man. He's a good man. He was here the other day. We uh, we had a. He came to watch my football team, and we had a Sunday roast here in the village. Ah, uh, yeah. He was here for the UK for the Wales Bitcoin Conf, wasn't he? Uh, I don't know about that. I think he was just here for Bedford Real Bedford Football. Oh, sorry. Yeah, just, that, that no, was the I, main, I don't know. The I don't. main draw. Why most people come to the UK? Well, he he said. He said, you've got to talk to Peter. He said, you've got to get him on your podcast. If you do a sprint here in the UK, you've got to speak to him. So I, I don't always do this, but uh, not everyone will know who you are. So for this one, we need to tee it up. Just get, tell people who you are, your background, and why, why we're here today, what we're going to talk about. <laughs> well, they'll know that from the title. Sure. Okay. So uh, my name is Peter Young, and I'm the Managing Director of the Free Cities Foundation. Uh, Free Cities Foundation is an organization that works with smaller territories around the world that want to adopt innovative policies that are aligned to market principles. I've been doing this for about a year, but before that I live, I spent most of my career based in China doing UK trade and investment work. And I discovered Bitcoin through the Chinese community in about 2017. I started getting introduced to uh, the ideas in Austrian economics and libertarian ideas around that time. And that was part of the reason why I eventually made a decision to move into uh, the free cities and kind of uh, market economic space. You didn't think of establishing a free city in China? Well, that's an interesting one. There's already quite a few special economic zones in China. So you, there's already a precedent there for, for and some interesting case studies. But China's a, a, a difficult place to establish like truly autonomous areas for a number of historical reasons. Yes. Okay, so um, I'm, it's, this is a subject I'm interested in. I, I know a bit about it. My friend Balaji has just written an interesting book yeah. covering uh, similar ideas. And we also, we used to have this other podcast uh, called Defiance, and we made a show about free cities for that. Right. Um, and so I'm interested in it. But at the same time, I'm skeptical and have a lot of I have a lot of kind of challenges and questions, which I, I think we'll work through today. But for you, what was I kind of want to understand what the steps were? Was it you discovered Bitcoin and libertarian ideas, and you f you felt like this is an area you want to work in, or was there just like a coincident coincidence or a meeting of ideas? What kind of happened? So when I was in China, I worked for the UK government, for the UK embassy in Beijing and the consulate in Wuhan. So I was kind of working Wuhan. from the, in Wuhan before it got big, Peter. 
Yeah. He were, you were in Wuhan before it was cool. I was in Wuhan before it was cool. Before it was 2015 to 2016. Did you, uh, did you go down to the local market and buy any... Uh, I may have done. I'm pretty... Bat, I've been... Bat soup? Yeah, just good bat soup down there. I, mean, I may have done that. Pangolin? <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, I didn't know that. All right, anyway, Carrier, sorry. Well, yeah, li- living in China, I, I was kind of working on the inside of, of, like, a major government, obviously, the UK government, and I... Came through that to be exposed to a lot of ideas related to how spending decisions were made and how governments go about deciding what they're going to regulate, what they're going to try and influence overseas. And I was fairly skeptical of some of the the principles that were laid out, but didn't have enough of an understanding to really challenge them. So it was around 2017 that I fell in with a good Bitcoin crowd in China who were really into Austrian economics and really into Bitcoin as well. And so in tandem, I started to learn about both of these things, and I found that they were a much better explanation for what was happening in China, what was happening in the UK, what was happening around the world in economic terms than what I'd been presented with previously. So I had about three years where I went quite deep into some of the classics of the Austrian school, uh, works by Murray Rothbard, Ludwig von Mises, uh, Karl Menger, and... Through that process, I started to look at how different kinds of political system could be established that would be more aligned to libertarian principles. And that's how I came to the Free Cities Foundation. And was the foundation already established or did you establish it? No. So the foundation was established in 2017 in in a different form. So our founder is called Titus Gable. He's written a book called Free Private Cities, Making Governments Compete for You. I have a feel, did we not talk to him? I don't think so. I think you heard a show with Peter Snow. No, I think we might have spoken to him uh, when we looked at making that show for Defiance. Was he nomadic for a period? Is he blonde? No, no. Oh, I might, might be confusing with somebody else. I just think the name stands out. Okay. Well, Can you find his Twitter? Mm-hmm. He's not He's not active on Twitter, but oh. you'll find stuff about him on YouTube. He's done lots of hmm. talks. Okay, anyway. Uh, so he's, he's the guy that's founded this, this foundation, and I've been managing director for about a year. And we've recently done a, a rebrand. We changed the name because it was previously the Free Private Cities Foundation. It's now the Free Cities Foundation. Uh, we just have a slightly broader remit now. But yeah, Titus was, was the guy that founded it. I got introduced to it through Titus and Rahim Tahazadegan, who's an Austrian school economic economist based in Vienna. So he previously worked for the foundation, and they... I ended up finding them through work I was doing with uh, some some other Viennese people. So I'm sure I'm sure Balaji introduced me to him. It really stands out. I'm gonna have to check after this. Yeah. Um, okay. So the fa- how big is the foundation? How many people work at the foundation? Uh, we've got about ten people as, okay. as the core team, and then we've got a few contractors, and we've got four on our board. And is the idea to establish free cities or to support people who want to? How does it work? So the foundation itself, we make the moral case at, that. A world where there's a plethora of different kinds of society where people consent to the rules and people have the ability to choose what kind of system they live under is a better society for everyone. Okay. That's what we make the case for. And we run a conference, we put out social media posts that spread the message about this, we create resources for people that want to learn more. And then we also work closely with commercial partners. There's a commercial partner called called Tipolis, which uh, invests actively in projects like the Zones for Employment and Economic Development in Honduras. There's a couple of active projects there. We've got a new project in the pipeline in West Africa that we're hoping to be able to announce at our conference in October. So there is an element of working with investors that are 
actually actively uh, building free cities aligned projects. But then we also just create general resources for people that want to take this forward themselves to go and do so. There's a free city in India as well, isn't there? That's one I'm aware of. Um, there's various like er- areas of India that have a high degree of autonomy, but we, we there's a particular free city, Danny. Can you try and look it up? Uh-huh. Um, I'll know if you find it. There's a particular it's one because when I was there. Yes, it. That's it. What's it? What was the name? Oroville. Oroville. Okay. Mm. Do you know of Oroville? We. Uh, it rings a bell, but I, I, we don't have any uh, relationships over there with with Oroville or with, uh, with with many with India. To be honest, it's an area we like to work. Yeah, because more. When I was in India, I met somebody who was like they were they were heading there and they were explaining right. it to. It. That was like one of my first exposures to these cities. And I was reading about it all on like Wikipedia, and anyone can go along and visit it and stay there. Apparently, right? Uh, can you find it? Yeah, yeah. Let me pull it. Yeah, they had a bunch of weird different rules around it, but it, it's like a it's like a village community that all works together. I don't know what they do for money, um, but here we go. Oroville belongs to nobody in particular; belongs to humanity as a whole. But to live in Oroville, you must be willing, must be a willing servitor of the divine consciousness. Oh God, Oroville will be the place of unending education and constant progress, and a youth that never ages. Okay, sounds pretty hippie. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, uh, that sounds like a like a, a commune. Do, do we have an idea of the size of it? Okay, uh, two thousand eight hundred people. That's small. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's a community. So, we work with various kinds of projects, mm-hmm. ranging from fully autonomous zones within nation states to intentional communities. And there are tens of thousands of intentional communities across the world. Okay, and this this would be like definitely on the larger side of the intentional communities end, but. There are lots of different rationales for people coming together to establish a common set of rules, and they have lots of different political philosophies. We tend to work more with those that have a more libertarian focus, um, but uh, there are yeah, there are quite a few projects out there that you could name that want to be established with their own unique set of set of rules. Okay, talk to me about. Give me an example of one of the projects you're working on at the moment, and then that's probably would it be easier for me to then start pinging the questions that you I have. Yeah, so our, our founder, uh, Titus, and uh, the commercial organization, Tipolis, have uh, an active investment in a project in Honduras called Prospera. Um, this, this project has got about 150 acres of land. Um, is it on an island? It's on the island of Roatan, yeah. on, which yeah. is off to the north of We know of this, Honduras. don't we? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what, what they're doing is exercising a degree of autonomy that they've been granted by the Honduran government to... Uh, do interesting things with property rights. So, for example, ha- establishing 3D property rights rather than 2D property rights. Which What does that mean? That, that means that if you have a house, you can decide that you're going to buy some of the land in the air, ab- sorry, some of the space in the air above someone else's house. And what that means is that with, with, problem, with problems like, so if you're in a densely populated area and someone comes and builds a very large uh, skyscraper next to your house and blocks out all the light, then this is this is going to reduce your standard of living because there's you don't have access to natural light. So the way they try and get around that is by establishing uh, 3D property rights in the air. So huh. it's just this is just one example of like an innovative governance thing that they're introducing. But they're also uh, introducing uh, they've have bit, people uh, using Bitcoin within the within the companies over there. They have um, like looser looser kind of. Uh, regulations around around the business activity there, so it's quite a free business environment. They have lots of very innovative ways in which they're doing the building. So they're creating modular buildings in in the area, which um, can, which in normal planning permission uh, circumstances wouldn't be possible because you have to kind of create a finished product. And so they're experimenting with 
lots of different uh, governance innovations when it comes to uh, land regulation, business regulation, currency, and then property rights regulation. Okay, so how much autonomy are they given by Honduras? Do, do, do they have a, a, a local-owned government? So it's probably the highest degree of autonomy that any area within a nation state has been granted. So they get autonomy to uh, ov over some of their commercial law, but not the criminal law. Yeah. And there is an entity like a private operating company that manages all of the services that are deemed to be like that would normally be provided by a local government. So there's a high degree of autonomy there. They can set their own, they can decide that their legal system is going to be arbitrated by a third party court. So a court that's in another country, if they want to, they can have their own court independently to set up. For, for civil crime or for, so, for civil litigation or for even criminal? For, for civil litigation. So criminal is still done through Honduras, yeah. Yeah. but this, this, this is to do with mainly business regulations for companies that come and set up there. Mm -hmm. They can decide that they're going to, for example, if there are two Swiss companies that come and set up in this area, they can decide that they're going to sign a contract and have a Swiss judge uh, arbitrate any disputes between them. Okay. So this kind of thing is, um, there's a high degree of autonomy that's been granted to uh, these areas within Honduras. Prosper is one. There is another sorry, one. Called... Just, sorry, let's just stick with that one. So, sorry, because it's interesting. Um, so who provides the policing? So that's provided by the operating company. Okay. They provide, they, they hire a private company, like a private security force, and they police the area. And then do, do they provide it for the whole of the area and people pay a tax or is it an opt-in? So it's, you pay a fee to be part of the, part of the community. Okay. And it's the same. It's the same in Morazan, which is another another area. So you pay a fee to be part of the community. It's quite a low fee, and then there are additional fees that are played by the companies. So, so like a council tax, basically, you get your you pay a fee and you get your services. Yeah, so similar to a council tax. Um, it's it's written within a, a contract what it's going to be. So when you sign up, you know what it what the fee is going to be for a period of time afterwards, and then there are also some other other sources of revenue that are drawn from. The companies, so there's also an income tax for the companies, for example. This, this uh, is it. That's it. Yeah, it's beautiful. We should. It's go. a beautiful. It's a beautiful place. You should go. You've been. Yes, I have. Went in last. Is, night, is this November. real or is this like an artist interpretation? Uh, this is Pristine Bay, I believe. I can't quite see with the okay. light. This this is the main uh, area where they have the offices in Prospera. Just for people listening, we're looking at photos of this. This is on BitcoinMagazine.com, so we'll put it in the show notes. It's basically it's. A beautiful island. Yeah, that this might like be part tea. of the pristine, pristine Bay development. Is that a golf tee? Uh, yeah, there, there's a, they've recently cool, purchased yeah. a, a golf a golf course to incorporate into, <laughs> into the area. Okay, so you pay a fee. Do you know what the fee is? So if you want to become an e-resident of Prospera, I believe it's about $500 What's an e -resident? a year. Someone that's a, like a remote resident. Okay. And it's about $500 a year. That that doesn't. You don't necessarily need to be based within the zone. You can you can have access to the services. You can have access to the legal arbitration. But uh, but they have about three hundred, I think, people that are currently e-registered. So I could just e-register and come you and could, stay. Yes. And what is it like? Is there a hotel I can book there if I want to go visit? There there are yeah there are. So not actually within Prosper itself. So Prosper itself is currently reasonably reasonably small. We're talking like a few dozen people living um, and working within the area. As the same for the other projects that are that are over there, but so, what could it grow to? Uh, tens of thousands of people in Prospera. 
Well, the thing about the thing to bear in mind about it is that it's not Prosper itself is not just a specific piece of land. It's kind of a platform through which any uh, area of land can join and grow. So it was initially a 58 acre development, and then they incorporated this. A pristine bay development, which is about another 70 to 80 acres. All on the island. And these are on the island, but the, like, Prospera as an entity is is managing these individual areas through a common set of rules that they have. And you don't have to have contiguous land. The land can be based in any part of Honduras or even any other country. As long as, uh, okay, they'll come back to that. So as long as the government approves it? So what, what Prospera have done is they've created a governance platform and if any area of any country decides they agree that part of the land can be part of Prospera, that can, that can happen. That's their long-term ambition. So what they've already done is, is increase the size to this 150-acre uh, slot. But they could, they could also do that if, if there were other areas of land that could be incorporated. They could also expand to incorporate that. But what? So if, say I owned a bunch of land in um, Honduras and I wanted to become part of it, what is the incentive for me to do that? What do I get from being part of Prospera that I don't... What do I get new? So you get a different kind of regulatory environment. Okay. So one of the challenges that Honduras faces is that a lot of businesses that would otherwise invest there won't invest there because they're not confident in the legal system or they're not confident in the security situation. Honduras has got one of the highest yeah. crime rates in the world. So if you have a situation where you're maybe there are issues with the local police um, and, and you're not happy with that or there are issues with the courts and you have a business dispute and you're not happy with it going to a normal court, then this offers the ability to have disputes arbitrated by a different set of rules and different system. Okay, so this makes sense. So you can just, you can bypass the uh, less reliable, potentially, I don't want to make false accusations, but potentially corrupt security forces and... Uh, legal system and, and have a private, more private system or more independent system that people can trust in. That's correct, yes. And the Honduras government likes this because you essentially are out, you're essentially privatizing parts of the legal and security system because they can't handle it. So the, the current Honduran government doesn't really like this. Okay. The previous Honduran government did like this. And this was this law was established in 2013. So these zones have been in existence for about three or four years. There are a few years after the law was introduced. But earlier this year, a new government led by Jaumara Castro came into, came into office and they have a very different political agenda from the previous one. And so at the moment, there is currently some uncertainty around what's going to happen with the future of the zones because the current government is quite quite anti them. So that kind of leads on to my next question because I was like, this sounds great. What if the government just says, well, fuck this, we want all this land back and screw you and your laws? That's a great question. So that's why one of the things that we focus on at the foundation is to try and give new zones a really strong legal footing because we believe in, in strong property rights for people. We yeah. believe that that's the best way to encourage growth and to alleviate poverty. And if you have a system legally whereby someone uh, can't just come in and totally overturn an existing system, like, for example, in the UK, a new government can't in, they can't overturn UK common law. Common law is established over centuries through decisions made by, by judges. There are certain things that we say, like, there are limits to the power that we have to our elected governments. And I think you can make a case for that in other, other areas as well. 
And one of the things that can be done with special zones is that you can have, for example, international treaties that are signed that protect the the zones such that if the government of a country decides they're going to expropriate property or land or resources from a particular zone, then overseas governments have a right to do the same to Honduran assets or to that government's assets in another area. You can also do things like introduce constitutional protections. So both of these have been done in Honduras. So there was a constitutional amendment made, there were international treaties, and these mean that actually for the existing projects, even though the current government has said we're we're not a fan of these projects, it's quite hard for them to actually change the status quo because there's very strong legal protections that were put in place. I'm pleased to welcome my new sponsor, Ledin, to the podcast. Now, from savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of holding today without selling their Bitcoin. With the recent events in the lending market, Ledin demonstrated that their robust risk management strategy was the right approach. They don't actively trade or invest in DeFi yield generation and have experienced zero losses as a result of their strategy. Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They're also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. And not only Ledin are a sponsor, I am also a customer of theirs now. I am using their services. So if you want to find out more, please head over to ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N.io. Next up, it's the Pacific Bitcoin Conference, hosted by Swan Bitcoin on November the 10th and 11th this year in sunny Los Angeles. Now, I've known Corey, Yan, and Brady for years, and they've been pulling out all the stops to make the Pacific Bitcoin Conference a celebration of the Bitcoin community. I'm going to be emceeing the conference alongside my friends Natalie Brunel and Stefan Navera, and there's going to be an incredible lineup of speakers, including Lynn Alden, Alex Glastein, and Preston Pish. Now, Pacific Bitcoin is going to be the right mix of education and good fun with unique experiences. They've got a surfing simulator and loaded with other events and parties before and after the event. They're bringing the brightest minds in Bitcoin to discuss a range of topics from macro to nation estate adoption, mining and lightning. And you're not going to want to miss this inaugural Pacific Bitcoin conference. I know it's going to be a special event. Now, Swan are offering a huge 30% discount to listeners of the show. Just go to pacificbitcoin.com and use the code PETER at checkout. That is P-A-C-I-F-I-C-B-I-T-C-O-I-N.com and use the code PETER. Next up, it is Ledger. Now, recent events have highlighted just how important self-custody is. And Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you as a Bitcoiner to take control of your Bitcoin and the world's most popular hardware wallet just got better. Ledger have recently announced the launch of the new Nano S+. The larger screen makes it easier to manage and verify your Bitcoin transactions, and the Nano S+, maintains the same high level of security as all other Ledger products. Now, I have been a Ledger customer since 2017, and I absolutely love the S+. Now, if you want to find out more, if you want to check this out, if you want to purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P, dot l-e-d-g-e-r dot com also today we have bit casino 
So they are now running a very cool competition where you can join me at the North London Derby, Arsenal v Tottenham, hopefully to see Arsenal absolutely spank Tottenham. Now they have created a Bitcoin box at the Emirates Stadium and they're going to be giving away two tickets to the match. It's on October the 1st and to find out how to enter, just check out their pinned tweet at twitter.com forward slash bitcasinoio. That is twitter.com forward slash B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O-I-O. Also, please remember to gamble responsibly. But certain certain presidents sometimes ignore constitutions. They uh, do. We saw that with um, in Bolivia. Was it Morales? Morales was he? And we are. Some people would argue in El Salvador that um, Bukele is ignoring the constitution. Will likely run again. Mm. Uh, we don't have to debate why or not. But so there's two ways to defend property rights through the judicial system. Yep. And uh, through armed defense mm. does prosper need an army well so just to go just to go to the way that you can defend it without having to resort to an army if you have a international treaty which says that if you expropriate resources in this in this area that our people from our country have invested in for so prospera uh, has one with well the honduran government has an investment protection treaty with kuwait so if because Kuwaiti nationals have invested in Prospera. Mm -hmm. If there is deemed to be expropriation of their resources in Prospera, then the Kuwaiti government has the right to seize Honduran assets in in Kuwait. So there's this is a way that you can you can protect investment in in areas mm. without having to resort to like direct military defence of the area. That's fair, that's and that's it. something that's already been introduced. Okay, um, I mean, I just like the thought of you know. I think governments will always struggle to be able to deliver everything that a government feels like it should because they're incompetent and inefficient. And having traveled around South America, we know there's challenges with regards to security and trust in the local law enforcement, the judicial system and business. To be able to outsource that to more trustworthy private entities is a logical next step because it takes the responsibility off the government. It takes the cost burden uh, and, and it puts trust in the businesses that want to invest in that. It makes absolute total sense. Like I get, I get it more now, having heard that, than I did say previously. Um, so, with regards to this situation in Honduras, unfortunately, the local government, the new government, let's say, uh, doesn't. They're not as interested. Do, do you have a program to try and educate them and spend time with them? So. Ideally. We, uh, <laughs> no, we don't. And I think there are people that are involved in the projects, running the projects directly, that do have those dialogues with the with Honduran government. Uh, we don't s seek that out ourselves, partly because uh, they're, they're, they're very far away from our, our thinking on, on a number of different issues. It's a, it's a communist party, so their ideals are, are very they? different. Yes. I didn't know this. Yeah. It's, right. Uh, well, hold on. Are they, are they, I mean, are they a historical communist party? Or? Um, they they ran they ran on a uh, certainly a, a very socialist platform. Okay, and I think the words communism were used. I mean, it would it. I'd have to I'd have to look the exact vocabulary that was used. I mean, are they not aware of the history of failed socialism in South America? Well, this is one question we ask. Yes, it's it. It does seem. Uh, it's a little bit exasperating that yeah. people are still voting for these kinds of ideas, given the history in the region of them not. How long have they succeeding. been in? Sorry, I know we we're only only, only about six months. And how much damage have they done so far? 
well, there's been quite a bit of drama uh, at the at the parliament. There's been uh, a reasonable amount of of policy change that they've been in, able to introduce. Um, people people can go and look that up if they want to see exactly what what happened. There's been some kind of like lots of political struggles at the beginning, um, but yeah, I mean they're just trying to take the the country in a in a direction which we we don't personally think is going to be helpful for people. I wasn't aware of any of this. Yeah. So. Well. Wow. Okay. So, um, so really, I, I understand why they don't like your ideas. And if they're a social, you know, socialist slash communist based party, because you're essentially uh, advocating for the opposite, which we is are. a private system. Uh, and uh, okay, so within your system, there is a fee you pay if you're an e-resident. So that's a visiting resident. What about a permanent resident? So you can't actually establish a permanent residency like with a passport okay. um, in, in, that, in the sense that you can bypass the visa system of Honduras. That's mm. one power that hasn't been granted to these zones. Um, but the way that it works, to give just to expand it a bit more beyond this one project, yeah. Prospera. So the way that they do membership of the cities in another project, Morazam, which is by San Pedro Sula, which is the largest city in Honduras, uh, that's done based on you can either become a, a member of the city or you can like rent a, rent a property there. And so there are lots of people there that are renting properties that are like very affordable and they provide basic security for the people that are, that are, that are resident there through the, the private operating system, through the, through the security um, system that they have there. What's it called? The area. Yeah. So it's San Pedro Sula. And then if you go up, to, up from San Pedro Sula to Choloma, which is an area with very high uh, crime rates, mm -hmm. then Morazan sits within that. Is it like a compound? It's it's like a, a walled area. Uh, a walled yeah, you could call it a compound. It's a it's a walled area with uh, with houses with some industrial. Can we find projects. pictures of it? What, what's that called? Sorry, Morazan. Morazan. If you go to our website, you'll be able. Mm -hmm. You might be able to find some pictures. Free cities.org. Just to clear it up as well, they were a liberal party rather than... I don't know what their policies are, but they're not actually called a communist party. They're a liberal party. Uh, click on blog. And then scroll down. Go Click on the Rosa Aguilar one. So this is one of the residents of Morazan. My mother fight for her dreams. Yeah. Um, you scroll down a bit, you'll see a few more pictures. So that's that's Rosa who, who moved there and this is constructing. What are they constructing there? This is constructing the main warehouse where they now have a medical supplies company. Okay. Is that a, a private company that's come in and established there? It is. Because they trust it? Yes. And they uh, are able to distribute supplies throughout Honduras? Throughout Latin America. Throughout Latin America, America, but they feel safe having a property there cause they have, uh, because they have legal protection and security and people won't come in and raid and... That, yeah, that's yeah. that's one of the incentives. Yeah. Okay. And then these are the homes that have been established. Yeah, these are some of the homes. This so these are, this is a new set of construction there. Um, the woman who's living in in this area that's that this article is about is uh -huh. staying in this this house at the end. And of the she's row. she's Honduran. She is. And this for her is good because she is able to live somewhere slightly safer. It's better for her and her daughter. Is that yeah. what we're saying? And yeah. okay. So this is a, this is a way of privately solving uh, historic poverty and, and crime issues within developing countries. Yeah. So the woman that was staying that, that is now living in in Morazan was staying in an area called Choloma, just near just nearby, 
she'd never had a business before. She uh, was in a, quite a few personal problems with, with her family, has some young children. She's a single mother. And this provided her an opportunity to become an entrepreneur for the first time, uh, to have a place that she could know that, sh- that she would be able to use for a stable period of time where there was stable electricity, but also where she knew that there wasn't going to be any kind of local issues with, with crime. And she's been very successful. She's now employing her own staff. She's got her own like basic stuff for a restaurant, for a small shop. And do her staff live in the same private area as her or do they recruit it in? I think, I think they commute in. Commute I'm, in. I'm not sure, actually, if, if they live there or not. And how did she afford to do this? Did she have money or did she go and get a loan within there? It's, it's quite cheap to do it. Yeah. So I think they charged her something like $20 a month to live there, to rent an apartment. How? How can that work? Partly because they want, because it's good for ha- to have her as part of the community, because okay. she provides services to the workers. And okay. so they want to just offer her a, a really good rate. Okay. But on the understanding that it was still like a paid service and that there would be conditions attached to, to staying. But they just try and establish the basic principles, but make it as affordable as possible for local people because they think it's it's a good thing to have them as part of the community alongside okay. these larger businesses like the medical supplies company. Okay, so that's in Honduras. Where else are you establishing or working with private cities? Yeah, so outside of Honduras, what we're what we've been able to do is is more is more limited. I mean we've got some partnerships with some intentional communities. So one that I'd name is called Lieberstad in Norway, which is an intentional community that's being set up there. It doesn't have any kind of legal independence, but it's a place where people are coming together with a kind of libertarian mindset in order to establish a community. And that's a a small project with a few dozen people again, but that's an example of one nearer to Europe. What, What can an intentional community do without having any control over setting laws? Because... Because the majority of the framework for libertarian ideas comes from uh, the idea with regards to the size of the state and legal framework. So if you're not able to in, uh, affect or have your own set of laws, what can you actually do? You can... So there's a, there's a bit you can do. You yeah. can trade internally in a way that's not utilizing the banking system. And there are different rules around trade, around taxation, around what needs to be reported in terms of accounting and things like that. Why though? Because if you're, but if you're evading local tax laws, then you're- You're not evading them. So there's different rules uh, in lots of places, but also in Norway regarding what you can do if you're just trading internally as a community. So this this particular, if you're not using- you know, fiat currency when you're when you're trading, you're just using uh, some some other tokens. This particular project has a stable coin that they use in order to conduct local trade. And they then... need Fedimint. <laughs> yeah. Do you know about Fedimint? A, a little bit. Yeah. I was talking to Obi yesterday, actually, and it came up in uh, in the discussion I had. Uh, that sounds perfect for them. Yeah. But but yeah, it's 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 a way that you can. Yeah. This is the project. Uh, it's a way that you can. If you're someone that doesn't like to have to do a lot of reporting for all your activities to the government, then you can join a community like this and you can do it through their individual stablecoin. And then the way that it works internally is that only the company itself does like the reporting and buying of things on behalf of the community. Right. And then that sort of stream, streamlines and simplifies the whole the whole process. What you guys really want, though, you really want a large, successful private city up. 10,000, 100,000, even a million people. That must be the goal, to prove this works at scale. 
Um, we, I think even somebody like myself who's interested or skeptical wants to see it work sure. and wants to see how it works. Yeah, you know, and wants to see that option. I, I love that thing where Balaji talks about vote with your feet rather than with your ballot. It's sure. much more effective. What is what are the biggest hurdles to get into that point? Is it that the state just has such a stranglehold and something like this is such a threat to them and nobody ever wants to allow this? Well, it's in part it's convincing people that this is this is a good thing to do. And in part, um, it's finding the right the right areas where you can where you can buy land and you can expand and it takes time. Uh, the I've, I've mentioned projects in Honduras and I mentioned other projects like Liberstab we have partnerships with, um, but we're also working on a new project in West Africa which hopefully we'll be able to announce in two to three months. And this is somewhere where we are aiming for that like ten thousand kind of. Uh, figure eventually. So how much can you tell us about that without announcing it? <laughs> Not a great deal other than if all goes to plan, uh, then that will allow an even higher degree of autonomy than what's been possible in Honduras. Right. So if people want to learn about that, we'll be making some announcements about it at Liberty in Our Lifetime in October. It's not the one with that rapper, is it? Sorry? It's not the one with that rapper. Oh, Econ. Yeah. It's, it's not, no. Thank God. It's not Jesus Christ. Why, why would any of these countries al allow you to do this? Do they get paid from the city? So we, we ideally try and create a, a win-win situation for the, for the government. So the government, uh, in, in Honduras, there is a percentage, there's a, like a profit-sharing deal for the, for the company that comes and sets the development up. So a percentage of the profits, something like 12%, from the Honduran projects goes to the government. But also, uh, the same reason that countries allow the establishment of special economic zones, because it brings in investment, it creates a preferable environment that's more competitive internationally. So people come in, they invest, they build things, that creates jobs for people who are in the surrounding areas. So it's, it's, there's lots of reasons why people establish special zones, and these, these zones just go slightly further uh, in terms of their, their autonomy. And that's the case we always try and make the... It, this is a genuinely beneficial thing for, for the government because we believe that it is um, a symbiotic kind of relationship that people, that if you establish a special zone, then it does genuinely help the host government because, you know, if you look at, we're talking about China at the beginning of the show, if you look at what's happened to the area surrounding Hong Kong, like Shenzhen, like Shenzhen is now the wealthiest um, like per capita place in China uh, because of, in part because of its uh, its relationship with Hong Kong and the fact that it sits just across the border. Because when you have these really uh, wealthy and successful areas, then that creates more opportunities for people in the geographical proximity. So we make that kind of case to, to, to governments when we're talking to them about establishing special zones. And I guess you're, you're taking some of their responsibility away from managing areas and paying them for it. You're paying them to, to operate an area for all of them. It's kind of, there's like a strong logic to it but at the same time you're making an argument for government to not exist you're basically having to tell them there's no reason for you to exist without telling them that but telling them enough to convince them to do it well yeah if you want to get into a really philosophical case for I do. It, uh, yeah some people you could you could you could make that argument what what we're saying really is you're that you don't testing. have to you don't have to go as far as as we might do individually in terms of your your view on politics and whether you think that you want to go to a full anarcho-capitalist kind of society or mm. whether you think something like that's more libertarian but further further away from that and more close to what today's society might be is the better option. You don't really have to take a, a position on that because in practical terms, what we're, what we're suggesting is that 
the zones are just granted a high degree of autonomy. And we make the case for having good legal frameworks, for having better incentives for the zones that are established, such that the people that are running the zones have a direct incentive to make them succeed. They're not rewarded for decisions that boost activity in the short term, but might be bad for the long term. Um, so we make the case we make the case to governments that this is a this is a good thing, and we point to examples of city states like Monaco, Singapore, Hong Kong, Liechtenstein, and the kind of wealth belts that have been generated around them. Are those particular territories successful though, because they're able to establish themselves as uh, zero tax or low tax regions in areas where people want to avoid tax and therefore it brings in the wealthy into those regions and they become successful because of that? I I don't think that's that's really the right way to look at it. But but um, I think it's an important lens to look. So if Monaco, yeah. zero tax. Uh, well, zero income income tax. Yes. Yeah. Okay, but so also, it's great for Formula One drivers. Yeah, Monaco has, uh, most of its tax is raised through VAT and it has a system whereby it, it strangely like people think about it as like an offshore financial place but there's there's really not much of a finance industry there it's i think it's a holiday zone and for, it's a, you know it's good for wealthy people i'm not criticizing i'm just yeah i'm just, Liechtenstein, what's the tax rate there uh i'm not entirely sure the tax rate but um the, the examples i'm more familiar with would be like hong kong singapore yeah and uh if you if you look at those examples, I mean, people people turned up in their millions to Hong Kong during the Cultural Revolution with nothing. Uh, there was people fleeing the Vietnam War mm. that were able to find refuge in Hong Kong. But the history of the of this region is that loads of people turned up, started from absolutely nothing, arrived with just the clothes that they had and a suitcase, and it's turned into a place that is wealthier in per capita terms than the UK is, and it took about four to five decades for that to happen. Why, why is that as well? Why is that? Yeah, why, why do you think, why was Hong Kong so, so successful? I think it was because in the post-war years, they established a very minimal government regime where there was between 9 and 12% government expenditure as a proportion of overall GDP. And that compared to, say, 40 plus percent in the UK. So the government in Hong Kong was much, much leaner than the, than the UK government because it had... Uh, some government officials. There was one who was the chief financial officer called uh, Sir John Cobblethwaite, who had some some more libertarian ideas. And through that, he kept the government really lean and small and just established clear property rights, which is what we advocate for at the Free Cities Foundation. Mm. And through that happening, the Hong Kong's economy really, uh, really uh, succeeded in, in a short period of time. And I think the the most impactful story for me is just the huge amount of people that I know were able to escape from what happened in mainland China and dramatically improve their lives uh, as a result of it. So Until recently, certainly. Until, until recently. But even now, uh, it's still... I think the changes that have happened in, in Hong Kong relate to politics and media. And even now, you can still do do business there with a relative degree of freedom. I am definitely concerned with what's happened in Hong Kong, but I Over think there's time. a lot to be learned from the overall story of, of how it succeeded in terms of how they kept kept the government lean and how they kept mm. private property rights strong. It reminds me a little bit of that uh, tweet we saw yesterday as well from the guy who was the president of Estonia in terms of fixing 
their oh, country yes. and as um see if you can dig that out because i just think that's an interesting analogy but i i guess what you're saying is um the, the more limited government is the more opportunity there is for people to flourish um i'm not somebody who's ever been convinced by the idea of no government mm. but i think there needs to be some kind of government but hopefully limited as small as possible um my worry about no government and purely private is yeah what's now happening in Singapore, which has essentially gone very authoritarian, mm. which is always the risk of having mm. you know, a fully private kind of jurisdictional area. What's your kind of like interpretation of what's happened there? So the difference between, say, Singapore and what we would advocate, like, so there are various models. The core model that we advocate is the free private cities model, which is a conception of Titus Gable. And within this model the way that the relationship between citizens and the people that operate cities, we call them city operators works, is that there is a real contract that is signed between each citizen and each operator. And within this contract, you specify all of the rules that the city has, and they mainly revolve around protecting the rights of other people and respecting the rights of other people, respecting their their privacy, their ability to do business in a way that they deem suitable as long as they're not harming other people and then within that you also have a set of like obligations in terms of what fees need to be paid for the basic services so that's one model that hasn't been fully trialed yet but we think that there's a there's a strong case to be made for it and the difference between that and, and singapore is that in singapore you still have a a government which is ultimately in charge of setting law um running the legislature running the executive so um Within, within our system, if there isn't a provision to say, if it doesn't say in the case of X, Y, and Z, you can lock down an entire population, keep them in their homes, then there's no legal basis for a free private city to be able to do that. Whereas in any other kind of society, the government just needs to get parliament to agree that this is the right course of action and it can be done. This show is brought to you by BCB Group. BCB Group provide online business banking services for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, I am a customer of BCB too. They heard about my difficulty with finding a payment services provider that understands Bitcoin and reached out to me. Now, BCB's clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe, but they are expanding globally. They have an amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients and all supported currencies. Now listen, I know some of you have had some trouble with this like me. And if you are looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you want to become a BCB customer. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Next up is my new sponsor, Wasabi who I will be now using to make sure my Bitcoin is private and I'm very excited about using their software. With the release of Wasabi 2.0, Bitcoin privacy is now effortless as the wallet has introduced privacy by default. Now, rather than having to choose to coin join, this can all be done automatically. So you just need to receive your Bitcoin, wait for the coin join, and then you can spend freely. Or the magic happens automatically in the background, which is a massive UX improvement. You also get additional privacy through Tor integration into Wasabi 2.0, so you don't leak your IP address. And there are no more minimum denominations, so you can coin join any amount, and there is no more change. So any amount you receive from a coin join is private. 
Privacy is something I've been taking more seriously recently. And with Wasabi 2.0, this has made it so much easier. So definitely go and check it out. If you want to find out more, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T dot I-O. Next up, it's Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I'm only ever buying. Come on, we're hodlers. We're not sellers. I'm also using the Gemini app for buying the dips, and I've been buying a lot of those recently. And I've also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Both the app and the website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy, and Gemini has invested in building industry-leading security since day one. Gemini are now also running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD, and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I dot com forward slash WBD. Also today, we have my new sponsor, the Texas Blockchain Council. Now, on November the 17th and 18th, the Texas Blockchain Council are putting on the Texas Blockchain Summit in Bitcoin country, Austin, Texas. Now, you know how much I love out there. I'm going to be attending. The event is two days of thought leadership for Bitcoin. Day one is all that any Texas Bitcoin miner could ask for. Top Bitcoin CEOs and their teams will be hanging out in Austin. And day two has top policy leaders from the US, both federal and state legislators, senators, House of Representatives, CFTC commissioners. What more could you ask for? Yes, I'm not just promoting this. I'll be attending the event in Austin, hanging out with my Texas Bitcoin buddies and interviewing someone very important on stage. So make sure you book your ticket, come to the event, let's hang out. To find out more, head over to texasblockchainsummit.org and use the discount code PETERMC20 for a 20% discount at checkout and let them know that I sent you. This offer is valid until the end of October. If, if, if one of these projects was successful enough, though, it could be one that eventually was completely autonomous from a state. Which would be super cool and interesting to see. I mean, it's almost like, why don't you just find an island and establish your own free country? The thing with, with doing that is that all of the land on the world is currently occupied by nation states. So there's no free land left. So wherever you go, you're going to have to f- work with the government. Unless you're part of the seasteading movement. That's the one exception. Huh. So the Talk sea- to me about that. <laughs> yeah, so the seasteading movement is designed to try and establish new societies on sea do you remember the freedom ship the freedom ship i do have you seen the freedom ship no this i followed this for a while and the project ended up dying i was like is this real are they really going to do this i don't know if it's still alive but it was a project the idea would build this entire city on a ship so if you go to the images um and i was like yeah some of the people involved with seasteading were involved in in this in this ship i mean look at that fourth picture danny it's like an airport on top and can you get i want to read about it Right, so the freedom ship, I mean, this is a lo- I was probably before my kids were born when I first read about this mm. a long time ago. So freedom ship is a floating city project, yeah, initially proposed in the late 90s. It was named so because of the free international lifestyle facilitated by a mobile ocean colony. The project would not be a conventional ship, but a series of linked barges. So this one was an integrated city 1,800 metres long with a... Housing for 80,000 people, a hospital, school system, hotel, casino, commercial, office, occupancy, duty-free shop. Like, it's, people, you've got to go online and search for the Freedom Ship and see this. I mean, it's huge. I mean, it just, think of a, think of a cruise ship and then like 20 exit. That's yeah. what it is. Um, and that's because in international waters. In international waters, there is 
there's no government that has full go back to the pictures though Danny I just want to sh- I just want to see some of those pictures because they are kind of I think there's also videos you can actually see for them but they actually did like the flybys and I was fascinated by this project just because of the idea of a I mean look at that airport it's literally an airport on top of the ship you can see the, this yeah it's it's unbelievable but I, I the one thing I thought about with this was um have you seen the film Snowpiercer I've not. Is no. it Snowpiercer with the train? Don't know. Like, I wonder how it creates the haves and the haves nots within the city and have the kind of like weird kind of zones of like, you know, the rich and, and the poor. Uh, I think sometimes these things are kind of like designed idealistically. Well, if you want to see what the current seasteaders are mainly doing, there's a company called Ocean Builders based in Panama. Let's have a look, Danny. And they are building individual pods for people to established at sea they use individual pods so like family-sized homes basically on sticks a bit like and can you connect them so you can become like a community that's that's what they aim to do yeah holy shit this is two of these are going up this summer wow this is fucking cool panama yeah oh my god that's so cool it's like something from the future so these these are going from about four hundred thousand us how far out to sea do you have to be they're actually starting doing these within panamanian territory but then you have to go out I think it's a couple of dozen nautical miles until you're actually in international waters. Okay. Uh, and then once you're out there and you're in your home, hold on, but you're just kind of stuck in a little pod. <laughs> you would be. What can uh, you do? You would be, but there there are ways that you can, uh, you can you could go out there, you could fish, you could <laughs> enjoy your home. That these, I mean, people can't see here, but these are quite spacious pods. Yeah. They've got. Hold uh, on. Are we? We, this is like WF WF stuff. Are we going to be eating bugs in these as well? <laughs> you just eat fish. <laughs> eat fish. Uh, okay, so why would you do this? Firstly, do you avoid any tax because you're in international waters? Yeah. Can anyone stop you? Can anyone anywhere go and build what they want out in the middle of the ocean? Well, they they could do. They could do, technically. There's there's not any law. There's There's something called the law of the sea, which is an international kind of set of rules that tend to be recognized by by states. Uh, but if you were to go and conduct some economic activity out in the sea uh, in international waters, then no individual state would have jurisdiction over you. I see a lot of flaws in this one. D- Danny, can you get up the green pod? That's oh, a land pod. I mean, they're kind of cool, though. Look at that. See, I want to live there. Fuck it. <laughs> that is so cool. Uh, what's the eco pod? Is it the budget one? This one's the one in production, by the way. We're, we're not meant to like pods, but these are very cool. I like these. I, <laughs> yeah, but that's what it actually looks like. <laughs> yeah, what is that? Our first prototype. That's shit. <laughs> Why put that there? We launched originally. Well, they're showing you how much it's improved since the original. Okay. But I, so there's lots of what we're saying here, there's lots of experimentation of ideas. Yeah. Interesting. So if somebody had enough money, they could go to a poor country and say, we want to buy some land from you. That would be a possibility. A country could sell its land. They could, but that land would still be subject to all the normal laws of the country. Why? Because it's part of that country's sovereign territory. What if that country sells its sovereign territory, though? Can it not do that? It... Well, when people normally say buy land, they're talking about buying it in the same way that you you bought this home, presumably. No, I'm I'm talking about someone rich enough to go to a country and say, I just want to buy... That one island. I just want that. I'll give you 20 billion, whatever the price is, but it's 
but we're claiming sovereignty over it at that point. You can't like we're not when we're we're separating ourselves from you. We're going to establish our own country. Well, typically there's a parliament and legal system, and you can't you can't uh, reverse sovereignty on any particular piece of land you've sold unless you go through the parliament. But just imagine so, that scenario. Okay, let's imagine it. Yeah. yeah, could you establish your own country? You could. Yes. There wouldn't be any reason for you to not be able to establish a country. Your obstacle would be whether this country is recognized yeah. by others. Yeah. So there are certain places that are seeking international recognition at the moment. One example is Liberland, which is... Yeah, I've heard uh, about this. Yeah, an area between Serbia and Croatia where the river has moved, which normally marked the uh, border between the... which previously marked the border between the countries. And because the river has moved, there is an area... In the in the U bend of the river, which is kind of ambiguous territory, it's not people aren't sure whether it belongs to Serbia or Croatia, and so a some people have come together and tried to claim <laughs> this land. <laughs> their, their project is called Liberland, and they're seeking international recognition from from other countries, and that has proved to be quite difficult because of the sensitivity around this particular piece of land. Yeah, there's a different view as to whether it's they're allowed to be there and allowed to establish the project, uh, depending on whether you consult the Serbian or the Croatian government. So there's some sensitivities there. But that's one of the key things that you need to to have in order normally to to trade with other people, to have a passport that's accepted at other countries where people want to visit other countries. It's international recognition. Yeah. I mean, look, okay, it's pretty clear that to establish these free independent private cities, whatever you want to call them, okay, it needs to be within the structure of... Uh open winning government that's allowing it to happen what types of governments do you think are most likely is it more developing countries because there's an economic incentive i would say that the where we tend to focus our efforts is on in developing countries partly because they're looking they're a bit more open-minded and they're looking for solutions and if you go to developed countries it's typically harder because people Tend to, tend to view politics through a slightly different lens. I would argue in part because maybe like some, some, some bad political ideas have started to become more popular in recent decades. And Such as what? Well, so let's take this country as an example. Um, I would argue that the reason why this country is so... Fucked. ...to come so... Well, it's still one of the wealthiest countries of the world is because we had a long period... Um, prior to the Second World War and the First World War, where we did have a very different system of government, where government, again, you know, this, the proportion of government activity um, uh, was was like less than ten percent of GDP. What are we at? We're at like forty percent now. We're, we're at about fifty percent. Are we fifty yeah. now? It's yeah. ridiculous. It, it's kind of gone up in the in the COVID response. And, and, and I've talked about this on the show recently. Uh, one of the things that was discussed recently with regards to inflation with the Government was looking to, uh, to remove ninety thousand positions from within government. So like, that's a lot of positions, and that was every that was all new positions that were added within government in the last uh, four years. Since twenty sixteen, it was was it twenty sixteen? Mm -hmm. So they wanted to remove ninety thousand, but they'd added not net ninety thousand new people working for the government since two thousand sixteen. Okay. That must be public servants in general, right? So that includes doctors, nurses, teachers. I don't know. It's not. Civil service jobs, it says. Civil service. Civil service. Yeah. But imagine how many of those have come just in the last two years because of COVID or two and a half yeah. years, whatever it is. Yeah. 
that seems like an incredibly high number to me because I think the total figure is about 420,000 civil servants in the UK. But Yeah, well, 90,000 civil service jobs like to lose an attempt to borrow jobs and find money to ease the cost of living crisis. I mean, look, it's, it's, I saw it here even in the US. There was like a report like 60% of government spending is on, is on government. Or sixty percent of text. What was it? We saw it recently. I can't remember. But I mean, the point is, is like these uh, successful, successful Western liberal democracies have the size of the state. It's just, it's just got out of hand. It's got too big. And it takes a lot of time for if you if you accumulate capital over a long a long period of time. I don't know when was this house built. Just out of interest. Uh, about a year ago. About a year ago. Okay, so it's a new build house. Yeah. Well, like the area that I grew up in, you know, in Gillingham, that the, the the houses there are normally built in the 1890s, most of them. Right. So that's kind of capital stock that you developed a long time ago, that you developed during the period of the gold standard, that you developed during a period when government spending was much lower, when there was no... Lots of the things that we take for granted, like government funding of science, the NHS, all these things, like none of them existed. Houses built with solid walls. <laughs> <laughs> this house is built with solid walls. I'm talking about the houses in Jiddingwood. They're built and in the they 1890s. Are. Oh, yeah, they, 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 all yeah, the walls they are solid. Exactly, they are. They're, they're, they're good quality, good quality build. So I don't know if you saw, you might not have seen it. There's a whole estate that's just been built up around here. Uh, I went, I got back from holiday two weeks ago. I yeah. went away for two weeks. The houses that there, that are there now, you can see them, did not exist before I went. In four weeks, a whole row of houses just appeared. Okay. And I don't know if they started the day after and they finished the day before I got there, but like they've just propped up. Okay. Well, I, there's nothing necessarily bad about that. No, there because... is, because they're soulless, badly designed, badly built, shit, shitty estates. They're terrible. The properties, like one of my friends moved into one of these similar estates, but the same yeah. company building them. The house, like after they moved in, the amount of problems they had with it just moving, the walls crack, cracking. These these are shit houses built very badly. It's interesting because people often say that, like, if you had... To... Someone, someone told me that roughly, like in, in Western societies, roughly half the housing stock or the building stock was built before the Second World War and roughly half afterwards. And if you ask anyone, would you prefer to keep all of the houses, all of the structures that were built before the Second World War after, then they always say before because these houses tend to be, or these buildings in general tend to be more aesthetically pleasing, built to, to so longer to last. And this is the opposite of what you would, ex what, people that are supporters of the current urban planning system and land planning system would would expect because the whole argument for intervention in the housing market and for being very prescriptive about how houses should be built, what the size of the rooms needs to be in order for it to be a suitable dwelling, and there are lots of, lots of those that exist. All of these are designed to improve quality, but the result is that because you end up uh, having to comply with all of these regulations to do with size and uh, the, the shape of housing and things like this, uh, you add on extra costs. And then this means that in other areas you have to skimp in order to come, come down and be competitive with your pricing. So we find that actually the result is the opposite of being very prescriptive in. Do you want me to tell regulation. you a really dumb regulation with for this house? Tell me. So did you notice the wheelchair ramp on the way in? Yeah, I did. So that's waiting to be removed. So this house could only be signed off uh, once had a wheelchair ramp established. But the problem with that is a gravel track. It's a gravel path yeah. to the, the wheelchair ramp. Also, there's nobody in this house that needs a wheelchair. But it has to, it can't be signed off. But as soon as it's signed off, you can then remove it. Right. 
That's that's bizarre. Yeah. Yeah, I came, came across some similar stuff in the US. So I went to visit someone in Austin who was having their, uh, who was about to buy a house and having the house built. And they were getting, they were just waiting for someone to come in and put in flooring. They were going to put in their own flooring, like entirely from, from scratch. And I said, why are you doing this? And they said, well, because the house has to be sold in a completed form before it can be, it can be, uh, it can be signed off before they can get a loan for it, all these things. So they're just having to do all of this extra work. And then the plan is to remove it entirely and then start it again. So there's lots of these regulations that, that do add all of these, all of these costs and push house prices up and, uh, it's it's quite it's quite bizarre. I, I wasn't. I, I'd be interested to know why this particular house has to have a wheelchair. No, around. they all do. I think they all do. Due now. to size, or? I think I, 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 any I new know. house. Or? I, I, no, I, I have no idea. All I know is for this house that it had to have a wheelchair access. I think it's because it, there's a step in front of the. Yeah. Most houses don't have a step. Even if you get up that that ramp up that step, you still got to go over the the step into the house. Mm. But I think it might be because the house has a step in front of the. The front door, mm. so it has to exist. But that is a broad regulation. Whatever the regulation is, it's not because that that exists. But like I say, there's you you can remove it afterwards. There's no law that says I have to keep it. Yeah, which it, the whole thing is absolutely ridiculous because it, and it, that's just one example. There's so many with this house. Like it's just with new build, and I think that's the problem when you when you when you build big government, you create a lot of jobs for people to have to create rules. And enforce those rules. Mm. Yeah, if you if you reduce the size of government, you're gonna have to get rid of a lot of those fucking stupid rules. Yeah, it's what you're advocating for. All of these policies often have the the opposite impact, and and that's why we're advocating for what we're advocating. And I mentioned Prospera at the beginning. This is an area, for example, where they they don't have any of these prescriptions around what you can and can't build. They don't have prescriptions around things having to be uh, in a certain predefined way in order to be sold and put on the market. Uh, they're using like modular housing, for example. So this means that you can just build one unit of a house and have parts of the house where extra areas can be added on at an, a later time if you want them to. And this is, it, it looks looks nice and neat and it's also quite cheap to do and produces a really nice um, aesthetic. So this is the kind of thing that's possible in in free cities, but unfortunately we have a we have a different system, which... Adds to adds to costs and creates problems uh, in most parts of the world. Do you think you could ever um, establish a free city here in the UK? Is there even an attempt to do that? Well, we'd have to. Could we do it in Bedford. We'd have to convince people that this was something that that would be beneficial. And if you look at how where parties are at the moment, where people get the votes, there's not really much in the way of libertarianism in the UK at all. No. I mean, there is a very small libertarian party that doesn't get very many votes. But if you look at the policies of the Conservative Party and the Labour Party, Liberal Democrats, there's not a huge amount of difference between them, I would argue. No, I completely agree. I mean, the Conservative Party don't look like the Conservative Party anymore. No, I mean, it's, it's like they want slightly less spending than Labour, but they want to, they want to see uh, more spending every year. And by the way, I was listening to one of your podcasts uh, earlier this week um, where you made reference to austerity in the UK and said that this was dealt with badly. But one of the things people often don't know about austerity is that even in inflation-adjusted terms, there was no overall reduction in spending, even during this whole period when the of whole course. country was, was talking about. But like even inflation-adjusted, 
There was no reduction in Spain. Yeah, and I mean, the, aster- the austerity rules were just a very cruel set of rules that made very little difference in the grand scheme of things. What um, If you want to make a significant difference to spending, you, re- you massively reduce the size of government. Yeah, this is what I would say austerity means, reducing the size of government. Yeah. And the only sense in which it reduced is, is in terms of the percentage of government's spending um, in terms of overall GDP. But the actual figures, the actual total amount of resource going to the government continue to go up every, every year. Mm. Um, so this is what I think we, we need. And I think it's, it's, really, it's really troubling that there are still so many social problems and there are new social problems that exist in this country, which I don't think existed uh, 100 years ago. Like, there are, there are certainly many ways in which society has, has improved immensely, but what you should be looking at is the rate of improvement. And if you look back to, say, someone in 1850 versus how well, well off they were uh, in comparison to someone in 1900, it's like a really, really huge difference. Like the average house price, for example, like people didn't really own homes in 1850, like everyday people. That started to become a thing in about 1880, 1890. Um, the, the amount of time pe- children were spending in schools was going up. The amount of uh, like good quality medical care was going up. Um, if you look at house prices, for example, in the UK, they went from like 13 times average incomes in 1850 to something like four uh, just before the First World War. And so all of these improvements were happening, but since we've dramatically increased the size of government, those trends, some of those trends have started to go back in the wrong direction, and we started to have lots of new social problems uh, in this country. And... To go back to your question of why there's not what, whether we should establish a free city or try to establish a free city in the UK, of course that would be a, a brilliant thing. But I personally feel that because we've had such a long period of development and because lots of people are still living in houses that were built in the 1890s or whatever it is, you can do quite a lot wrong and you can still have a relatively high standard of living. And I would argue that that's what we've we've done. We've you're able to just kind of coast off the capital you've accumulated historically and do do reasonably well just not have the improve like pace of improvement that you used to have well everything i'd argue that's what's happened unless you're particularly wealthy everything's just getting shitter a little bit it's like a it's like a death by a thousand cuts everything's just getting a little bit shitter for most people like they're getting squeezed and squeezed and squeezed and like like you say it's increasing the size of government it's also the money printing yeah, the, the dispro- disproportional impact that has on people. We had a guy, a guy on our show called Ovik Roy. I mm. recommend you listen to his show. You like him. He works for a free op in the US. It's a think tank. Um, and they talk about the compounding impact of inflation on the poor. Okay. And he even said even at low inflation rates, a 2% has a compounding impact on the, on the poor. You're just creating a widening, widening wealth gap. That's, that's worth listening to. Also, um, have you been to Harlow recently? No, I haven't actually. So I went down to Harlow recently, making a film about inflation. Ended up finding this art block. Can you see if you? I can't remember. The name. It's this. Uh, it's an old office block, um, disused office block. To solve their housing okay. problems, they've converted it into uh, residential housing. I can't remember the name of the building. It begins with a T. If you search up Harlow, um, the lawn. No, uh, residential office block. You got to see this. Let me show you this. Um, this to me is a, a very strong signal of the country going in the wrong. Yeah, terminus house. There we go. 
human warehouse housing. Okay, so it's an old disused office block. Mm. They have a housing issue in the country. So they uh, handed this over to a private operator to convert it into uh, social housing. It's a fucking ghetto. Mm. You get you 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 get down there and it's firstly around the it's, so it's it's right near the town center, but the I would say the poor end of the town center, the, the more kind of betting shops and charity shops. Around, there's a bingo in it, but around the edge, they've got like outside, um, and it was so depressing to see, but outside um, slot machine bingo. And then you have to go up through a set of steps to get into the building, and it's, it's, it's horrendous. It's, it's, and I, I'm like, is the solution to, how is our solution for uh, poverty and homelessness and single parent families to put them all inside this kind of, ghettoized office block rather than before where we, at least we had used to be able to provide social housing yeah and you know what because it's because of the size of government it's, this is why we bitcoin this is mm. like because we try and advocate for smaller government or i mean some people are no government but smaller government more responsible economic policy yeah well i think part of the solution is you just need to be able to build more houses and Prior to, it really stepped up in about 1948 with the Town and Country Planning Act. But prior to like the First World War, there was very little in way of planning restrictions. And you had a you know, huge amount of new housing being built. And I think part of the reason why these sort of solutions seem to be necessary is that it's very hard and very expensive to build uh, new places at the moment. And this is one of the things that free cities aims to solve and I'd like to see change in this country as well. I can tell you something funny. Um, when me and Danny popped out, uh, we were talking about this one and I was like, I'm so sceptical. I'm going to really kind of, I'm going to really like push some tough questions on him. But I really had that moment where it clicked with me when you were talking about Honduras in that the investment opportunity for some companies is limited because they fear the, uh, the issues with the judicial system or security. And that most of us know that the government's pretty fucking useless at most things, mm. apart from tax collection, maybe borders and a few other things, right? Mm. Again, I don't advocate for no government. Um, but the fact that you can A, B test whether you can prove that we can do some things running part of the, 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 part of the country better than the government, I think is brilliant. Mm. I like that idea and I'm convinced. Like I'm on board now. I get it. Yeah, I'm actually interested in learning a lot more about this. I want to go and visit that place in Honduras. Um, and I want to know about this place in Africa when it's announced. And I'd like to go. I think we've covered some historical examples of places that have, that have done quite well on this sort of model. And what we're basically advocating is that we try and examine what's worked well. Because the world is a very complicated place. Mm -hmm. And you have to. there are so many different factors that you have to take into account when you're analysing what a society uh has has been through and why it's been successful and, and why it hasn't been and what we try and do at the foundation is try and distill that down to the basic principles the, the market ideas that have made society successful in the past and we try and make that like a kind of cleaner and simpler uh legal framework and we we adopt that in in the places that we're working with or or encourage that um for other people that want to want to try out something new so um, yeah, we've we've covered we've covered quite a lot, and um, I'm pleased to have had the conversation with you today, Peter. Well, I'd like to do this again, actually. Um, and the reason being, I think I want to do a lot more. I want to read Balaji. I haven't finished Balaji's book yet. Yeah. And I'd like to read a lot more about what's been going on on this. Um, 
Yeah, I'd like to do this again. Uh, That'd be great. But if you've ever got something you want to talk about, you're welcome to come back on the show and just tell us if there's a particular project you want to tell us about. Uh, how can people support you or help you? You're obviously a foundation, so what can people do if they're interested in this? So th- you can go to um, uh, www.free-cities.org and there's a s- section on our website called Get Involved. Um, one of the things that people might want to do if they're interested in free communities is come to our conference in October. That takes place from uh, October 21st to the 23rd in Prague. And we're going to be showcasing projects like the Honduran projects uh, there, um, like Liebestad in Norway. Um, we should hopefully have something that we can say about the West African project there as well. So if people want to want to come along to that, that would be a great way to support us. Uh, there are also ways that you can you can volunteer or donate and things. So uh, visit our website, freedacities.org, to find out about the options. Amazing. Well, listen, all the best for this. And yeah, I really want to do this again. So thank you for coming in. And yeah, hopefully I'll talk to you again. All right. Thanks very much, Peter. Okay, thank you for listening to What Bitcoin Did. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Peter. I found the discussion thoroughly fascinating. It raises a number of fundamental questions. And if you could build your own country from scratch, what would you do? How would you do it? These are questions that have actively been explored. And it's more than likely that we're going to see some real-life examples coming up over the next years and perhaps decades. Now, there are also many concerns about such proposals. As such, the devil is in the detail. There will always be issues which I will cover in future podcasts, but it's hard not to get excited by a world where we can literally start A-B testing different forms of governance. So, yeah, super interested about this. We'll be checking it out more in the future. Anyway, you know where I am. If you want to drop me an email, it's head out whatbitcointed.com, and I will get back to you. All right, have a great week, and I will see you all soon.